I don't know if it was um, something that you guys just experienced, but something really important happened during that that second song is we were singing "You Are Good." Um, I just I think I I felt something different uh, in terms of a, a connection, a partnership with you, our church, singing the important words together, acknowledging the goodness of God. I was going to start off uh, this message with a a verse that's somewhat unrelated to what we're going to be talking about, but it just comes from Ephesians 1. It's how Paul opens up the entire letter. He's he's sitting in prison, unable to see this church. He loves this church. He's he's knelt and and wept with them on the beach as he got ready to never see them again in Acts 20. And he writes this, he says, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace is to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And that that phrase, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ is so important right now. I don't know how each of you are feeling, but I have talked to a number of you guys this week and are, are just feeling some of the weariness and what you need. And forgive me for being so bold as to declare what you need, but I believe it's what the scriptures declare as well. It's grace and peace from God our Father. We need what he has. If we are going to thrive, survive, get through, whatever phrase you want to put in there, if it's going to happen, it's going to be in the grace of Jesus Christ. And so I want to encourage you now more than ever to fully enjoy his presence, to experience him, to rejoice in him, to uh, even go to him. Honestly, like I was talking with somebody this morning, it's okay to ask to have this thorn removed from our flesh. Like, it's okay to ask. It's also okay for him to say, his grace is sufficient for us and his power is perfected in our weakness. So I just wanted to encourage you with that this morning. Uh, We're gonna dive into a very important and significant passage in the scriptures today, Daniel chapter nine. Uh, Pat and Stephanie Martinez, Patrick and Stephanie Martinez are gonna be reading that for us. I realize that... um, Not everybody calls him Pat. Patrick is how you might know him. Uh, They're going to read that for us, and then we're going to dive in together. So uh, let's go. Hi, Anthem. We are Patrick and Stephanie Martinez, and we're going to read Daniel chapter 9. In the first year of Darius, the son of Esaurus, by descent of Mede, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that, according to in the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet, must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely seventy years. Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. We have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us open shame as to this day to the men of Judah to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to all Israel, those who are near and those who are far away in all the lands to which you have driven them because of the treachery that they have committed against you. To us, O Lord, belongs open shame to our kings, to our princes, and to our fathers because we have sinned against you. 
To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness. For we have rebelled against him and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God by walking in his laws, which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice. And the curse and oath that are written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out upon us because we have sinned against him. He has confirmed his words, which he spoke against us and against our rulers who ruled us by bringing upon us a great calamity. For under the whole heaven, there has not been done anything like what has been done against Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has, upon, has come upon us. Yet we have not entreated the favor of the Lord our God, turning from our inequities and gaining insight by your truth. Therefore, the Lord has kept ready the calamity and has brought it upon us. For the Lord our God is righteous in all the works that he has done, and we have not obeyed his voice. And now, our, O Lord our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand, <clears throat> have made a name for yourself, as at this day we have sinned, we have done wickedly. O Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city Jerusalem, your holy hill, because for our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among all who are around us. Now therefore, O our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy. And for your own sake, O Lord, make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. O my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. O Lord, hear, O Lord, forgive, O Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake, O my God, because your city and your people are, are called by your name. While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my plea before the Lord, my God for the holy hill of my God, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the first, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. He made me understand, speaking with me and saying, O Daniel, I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to, to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then for 62 weeks, it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. And after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed, and he shall make it a strong covenant with many for one week, 
and for half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abomination shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. All right. Well, thank you, Patrick and Stephanie. Appreciate you guys uh, taking the time to read through this amazing passage for us. Um, so in this passage, we get a, a timeline update. Uh, Daniel says, in the first year of Darius. Now, if you think back, we're in the same zone as the lion's den. And that's when Daniel is uh, in his 80s. He's an older man at this point, at the end of a very long and faithful life. Uh, if you remember back to that lion's den passage, one of the things that we talked about was Daniel's rhythm of prayer. He was a man that would go and he would pray three times a day. He would open his window towards Jerusalem. There was this, uh, this sense of discipline in his life that even in his old age, having been in exile the entirety, for the most part, the entirety of his aware life, he was faithful to pursue God in prayer. Well, we see another discipline here. It says, in the first year of Darius, uh, uh, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. And we see that in uh, verse 2. And uh, what you see is Daniel was a student of God's word. Okay, Jeremiah, again, a, a contemporary of Daniel in the early days of Daniel's exile, had written this prophecy uh, that he had received from the Lord. And Daniel has devoted himself to studying uh, the words of the prophets. It's such a powerful thing. And so much happens in our lives when we devote ourselves to the word of God. Uh, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. And when we dedicate ourselves to God's word, things happen. It, it changes our perspective. It builds our faith and it helps us to endure. And we see that here in Daniel. God's word has a profound effect on Daniel. You look at verse three, it says, then I turn my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. Okay, this was actually a pretty standard operating procedure if you wanted to mourn or if you wanted to repent, to put on sackcloth and ashes. I just want you to picture this, uh, you know, potato sack race kind of a thing, or maybe those, uh, those really coarse coffee bags that uh, Randy Farwell used to give out. If you think of those kinds of things, that's the, they would put those on as clothing and then take ashes from a fire and smear them on their heads and their face. And it's this picture of, of I am dirt. Like, God, I am nothing before you. That's, that's the posture. So God's word has led Daniel to this place of raw repentance. Who am I before you, the living God? And it's such an important picture that we get that God's word does lead us to this place of repentance. So I want to walk through this, uh, this opening section. And the first 19 verses of Daniel 9 are Daniel's prayer of repentance. He's coming to the Lord on his own behalf, as well as the behalf of his nation. Like he's actually coming to God and saying, I have sinned and our nation, Israel has sinned. We know why you put us in exile. We know why this was the case. And what's happening is those 70 years are coming to an end and the sense of, of God's uh, judgment on Israel is starting to wind down. And Daniel does not want to miss what God was trying to say in this exile. 
He is craving whatever it is that God is doing. He wants whatever God has. I want you to refine me. I want you to purify me. I want you to do your work. And he's saying that also on behalf of his nation. Again, just to throw this out there, the posture of a follower of Jesus is not a person that says, I've got it all together. It's a person that is hungry for, I'll be honest, it's hungry for the judgment of God. Search me, O God. See if there's any offensive way in me. I don't want it there. Reveal to me my brokenness so that I can repent and come clean before you. That's Daniel's posture here. And he leans on the character of God. You look at verse four. Oh Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Straight out of Exodus 34, Daniel's calling on the character of God. And he contrasts that with his own personal situation in verse five. We have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. You are holy, we are not. And that right there is the crux of Daniel 9, the massive gap in character and action between God and his people. And that is why this this exile in Daniel exists. He is holy and we are not. He is good, we are wicked. He makes righteous decisions, we rebel. I don't know if you've been paying attention, but we've been talking about repentance a lot over the last 11 weeks. It's an ongoing theme in the book of Daniel. Now, I realize that our situation is not exactly like Daniel's. Uh, I don't believe that the sin of humanity caused God to send the coronavirus. I don't believe that. That's not our situation. That's not this. But... Daniel's situation drove him to prayer and repentance. And I do believe that the presence of this global situation should take followers of Jesus and drive us to prayer and repentance. Anytime the the curtain is pulled back and we get to see a little bit of the exposure of our humanity, it is critical that we go to the Lord in prayer and repentance. Search me, O God, and know me. See if there's any offensive way in me. I mean, honestly, just be be honest with yourself. Has the last 11 weeks, have the last 11 weeks revealed uh, your flesh, your brokenness? Has some of the, and forgive me for putting it this way, but has some of the grossness of who you are come out? It has in me. I've seen my brokenness on full display. I don't like it. I don't want it to be there, but the Lord is, is refining me. This fire is bringing the imperfections to the surface. That's a good thing, not a bad thing, if we have a posture of repentance. Daniel is praying through this. These 70 years in exile have brought to the surface, the refiner's fire has brought to the surface the imperfections of Israel. And Daniel is presenting them before the Lord saying, I hear you, Lord. Let him who has ears to hear. Daniel's saying, I got your message loud and clear, Yahweh. And now on behalf of this nation, we're coming before you with nothing but repentance. We need you. And you look in verse 19 and he, and he calls on the Lord. Oh Lord, hear. Oh Lord, forgive. Oh Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake. God, I need you and all that you have to offer. I need your forgiveness and I need you to redeem. At this point, our story is paralleling Daniel's. We're walking through a difficult trial and we want all that the Lord has for us. 
This is hugely important. It's important to Daniel that he not waste the exile. And I think that's been part of our heart through this time. It's not that we, we want the quarantine to continue. It's not that, they, that we want anything to happen. It is, though, that we don't want to waste it. It is absolutely that we want to take all that the Lord wants to do with this season and we want to maximize it for his glory. Lord, use it to refine me and purify me. And here's something that happens. As Daniel enters this posture of repentance, we see in verse 20 some pretty amazing things. While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my plea before the Lord my God for the holy hill of my God, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the first, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. Now, I don't know what you picture. Uh, maybe I've seen too many Marvel movies, but that's totally with some Led Zeppelin playing in the background and just, uh, you know, Gabriel kind of coming in the swift flight and he just lands like, uh, maybe that's not what you picture, but that's what I picture. It's a pretty intense scene. He calls it swift flight. Gabriel flies to him. If you ever wonder why we picture angels with wings, we have Isaiah 6 and we have Gabriel flying in swift flight. And he comes to see him at the time of the evening sacrifice. This would have been one of Daniel's times of praying. He made me understand, speaking with me and saying, Oh, Daniel, I have come now out to, uh, out to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out. That's the Lord spoke. And he says at the beginning of your pleas for mercy. So way back at the beginning of verse chapter nine, uh, that's when the word of the Lord went out and I'm here to give it to you. And here's the message. You are greatly loved, Daniel. So I have a message for you. I want you to hear that. First of all, this is so important. I've come to tell this message to you because you are greatly loved. This picture is given to Daniel because of his faithfulness. We've said this before. Daniel chapters 1 through 6 are there to show his character, to show who he is before Yahweh, so that as these visions are given, they're, they're sort of pre-authenticated by the life that Daniel lived. He lived a life of faithfulness. God loves seeing this faithfulness. He's, he's happy to give Daniel this vision. This is good for him. I want you to see this. You are loved, Daniel. I see your faithfulness. I see your obedience. If nothing else, one of the things that we can see is the dynamic nature of our relationships with God. God is interacting with us. He sees us. He knows us. And he, he rejoices in our faithfulness. There's something beautiful about this. In a sense, Yahweh is saying to Daniel, well done, good and faithful servant. Come and enter in the joy of the master. I have a message to give you. That's the context. Repentance, Daniel is greatly loved. A message has gone out for you and through you for the people of Israel. So let's dig in. Uh, verses 24 through 27. Uh, and these are, uh, they, they're verses that get a lot of attention because they do deal with a, a sense of sequence, a sense of timeline and theological importance to coming events. And so they get quite a bit of attention in terms of Christianity and we'll also see them play out in the New Testament as well. So uh, what we have here is Gabriel explaining this to Daniel. 70 weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin. Uh, so just to, to stop right there, that's 70 weeks. If you're curious about that, uh, that's a, there's a, a lot of use of the concept of 70 in the Bible. Uh, and then the weeks is actually the word sevens. So it's, it's kind of an idea that's given 
similar to Israel and Leviticus and Deuteronomy about this idea of jubilee. Uh, there's a sense of, of when the Lord will redeem the land and, and what it does to cycle in forgiveness to the people of Israel uh, over time. And then we have this New Testament picture of Peter coming to Jesus and saying, hey, how often do I forgive my brother? And Jesus says, uh, not, not seven times, but 70 times seven. There's this picture of like, uh, no, you forgive and you keep on forgiving and you keep on forgiving. And here you get this picture. Seventy sevens are decreed about your people. So God has a message to Daniel that there is a block of time that's coming. And Angel Gabriel actually breaks down the block of time for Daniel. He talks about how it's going to break out, and that's helpful. It's good information, and it's information that people have used for a, a long time to try and understand some things. But what we don't want to do is miss what's being said in this. So, 70 weeks are decreed about your people in your holy city to accomplish something, to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for iniquity, to bring everlasting righteousness or bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and prophet and to anoint a most holy place. Uh, and then some people will dispute that and say that actually says person. So to anoint a most holy. And then we'll kind of have that as a, as a block right there. Now we look at this list and what you get is a sense very much of, if you remember back when we went, went through the book of Matthew a few years ago, of the already not yet. In some ways, you can look at this list and say, yeah, done, finished, Jesus accomplished this. But at the same time, there's also this looking forward to a, a, a fullness, the inaugurated kingdom and the consummated kingdom. There's that sense of like, Jesus brought it in, but he's going to bring it to completion. And that's true with this list. As you look at what is done uh, in this 70-week period, 77 period, there's this call on the Messiah to accomplish something. And what we see is that Jesus both accomplished it and he's going to accomplish it. And it's kind of beautiful how that works. So that's, as we start to think about this, you're going to see there are elements of what's being told to Daniel that have been fulfilled and then also that are still going to be fulfilled. That's kind of a sense of dual fulfillment. We'll talk about that in just a minute. All right, so the time frame that's given uh, breaks things down. You have the first seven and you have 62 sevens. Uh, and then you have another seven. I'm sorry, the seven sevens, 62 sevens, and another seven. I'm sure I'll get all these numbers right, and I'll just nail this exactly. I was reading one commentator that said, if you ever are listening to the radio late at night and somebody says that he has uh, the interpretation of Daniel 9 and all the secrets of, uh, of the kingdom of heaven are unlocked, uh, the guy, the commentator said, you know that guy hasn't actually read this Bible. So the reality is there are confusing things in this. But what we want to do is try and understand again why did God reveal this? So let's start talking through this. The time frame that's given is that there will be a block from the word to restore and build Jerusalem, that's verse 25, to the coming of an anointed one, a prince. That's seven sevens. Now Jews in the second temple era, so that's pretty much from like 500 BCE to about the, the time of the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, that's considered second temple Judaism, uh, they had this picture of Daniel 9, and they were using it as a timeline. Many of them, not all, but many of them were counting down 490 years, 70 times 7, 490 years from the word that went out. Now, there's a little bit of a debate as to which word, like what's the starting date? Was it Cyrus's decree in 538? Was it Artaxerxes 1's decree in Ezra uh, to Ezra in 458? Or was it uh, Artaxerxes' decree to Nehemiah in 445. Those are the kind of debated start dates. 
kind of whatever start date they were using, there's a way to wrap up right around when the Messiah was going to be born. And so what you have is Israel was ready for the Messiah right around the time of Jesus being born. It's pretty incredible to see how that works out, but there is this this posture in Judaism gearing up for the Messiah based on this timeline that Daniel gives. Okay, so then it goes on. And we see starting in uh, verse 26, it says, and after the 62 weeks, um, oh, sorry, let me finish verse 25. I apologize, I'm working on this. Uh, It says, the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem, coming one an anointed prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then for 62 weeks, it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. So this is talking about that time of Israel in between, uh, kind of like Nehemiah we talked about when we went through the book of Nehemiah. It's when the timeline of the Old Testament ends to the time of Jesus. There's that block of time, and that's described as this difficult time, the season of 62 weeks or 62 sevens. And then after the 62 sevens, an anointed one, verse 26, shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. Okay, you're starting to get this sense um, that something difficult is going to happen. That we're building up towards a pretty critical moment in kind of that 70th week, it's this uh, kind of understanding of, all right, things are going to get a little bit difficult and crazy. Now, this passage refers to, we're going to go into verse 27 in a minute, this concept that Jesus talks about, the abomination of desolation. So verse 27, and he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. And for half of the week, he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abominations shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. So this passage relates to what Jesus talks about in Mark 13 and Matthew 24 as the abomination of desolation. And it's actually often understood as having multiple fulfillments. Uh, So Jews in that era believed that this prophecy had been fulfilled when Antiochus Epiphanes uh, entered into the temple, set up an altar to Zeus, and sacrificed a pig on that altar. That was, the, in their minds, the abomination of desolation. So Jesus, when he's born, is born into a context where people see at least part of this having already been fulfilled. And then what you have is Jesus kind of takes that ball and and runs with it, but gives a bit of a future picture even still. Uh, When you look in Mark 13, you see this prophecy that, that very much indicates that when the temple is destroyed in 70 AD, is another abomination of desolation. And so Jesus kind of takes this Daniel prophecy and does push it forward even out still a little further. And then what you see is in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, uh, you see in Revelation chapter 13 uh, that again, there's an even still more future to some of these things that are being talked about in Daniel. So that's why we talk about multiple fulfillments from Antiochus Epiphanes to the fall of Rome, I'm sorry, the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD at the hands of Rome to the things that are talked about still in the future, uh, the man of lawlessness, uh, the beast in Revelation 13. These pictures are given as, as multiple fulfillments to this prophetic word that's revealed in the book of Daniel. Now there are varying, varying interpretations as to when all of this is going to happen, but As we look at it, one of the things that's so encouraging, kind of regardless of how you would view the when, is that pretty universally Christians look at this and say, okay, we know that this is going to happen. 
all of the things that are prophesied about, these incredible things about uh, the, the finishing of transgression, putting an end to sin, atoning for iniquity, bringing in everlasting righteousness, sealing both vision and prophet, or, uh, or kind of authenticating both vision and prophet, and anointing a most holy place. There's, there's no doubt that these things have happened and will happen. It's this sense of security that what, what God gave to Daniel, he's proven himself faithful and revealed uh, the fulfillment of, and then what we learn from Jesus, Paul, Peter, and John is the future fulfillment, even still, of the things that are being revealed to Daniel here. Now, a couple of things that we should take a look at. One is that this is a very important passage, as well as Daniel 7. Daniel 7.14 talks about the, uh, the everlasting kingdom that will be given to the Son of Man, the dominion that will be given to the Son of Man. A theologian named N.T. Wright says it very plainly, if you want to be Daniel 7 people, you've got to be Daniel 9 people first. And what he's saying with that is that if you want this picture of an everlasting kingdom, the posture of repentance that Daniel demonstrates in Daniel chapter 9 it opens up the door for us to experience the everlasting kingdom that was prophesied in Daniel chapter 7. As you see the storyline, and it continues on in the New Testament. Again, Matthew and Mark, and Luke talks about it as well. He just doesn't use the abomination language. And then you see it with Paul in 2 Thessalonians, 1 and 2 Thessalonians. You see it with Peter in 1 Peter. You see it with John in Revelation. The storyline continues pointing towards the fulfillment, the total fulfillment of what God promises here to Daniel in chapter 7. But if we want it, if we desire all that God has for us, it is absolutely critical that we take on a posture of repentance. That in this season now, the fiery trials, as Peter talks about, that we come before him with our hands open saying, I don't want my kingdom come, my will be done. But Father, I want your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. That's my prayer. That's what I want to pursue. So there are a few things that we can take away from this prophecy and things that are important for how we're supposed to live in light of it. Uh, this is from uh, a man named Leon Morris commented on the book of Matthew, uh, the passage that talks about the abomination of desolation. He says, it's important to remember that all these natural portents in the apocalyptic literature are signs of God's power and overruling providence. They are a terror only to the faithless. Jesus speaks of some happenings that could be terrifying, but because God is in them and God is working out his loving purposes, they are an encouragement to his people, not a reason for them to be afraid. The first thing that we take away from uh, prophetic moments like this is do not be afraid. I don't know how you view kind of like end times and the, the final things, uh, what you're looking forward to, what the things you're afraid of when all things wrap up. But the bottom line of prophecy is that for those that are in Christ, there is no need to be afraid. Romans 8.1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you are in Christ Jesus, your eternity is secured. You have no reason to be afraid, even of visions of a future that seem perilous. They're not, they're not perilous for you. That doesn't mean that you won't experience suffering and fiery trials. We talked about that last week. Daniel 8 was so important for that. It's going to get worse before it gets better. But ultimately, there is an eternity, an everlasting kingdom that we bank on as the people of God. 
These visions are given to produce hope and faith and doctrine. They give us a picture of God's power and ability, his sovereign rulership over time and human history and the ability to bring all things together for good. It's so important for us to recognize that God is good and we don't need to be afraid. Now, there are elements of prophecy that are designed to be a warning uh, either to call God's people to repentance or unfaithful people to faith. That's a good thing. Not that God is, is threatening everybody, but there's this sense of there is a very real reality to judgment. And so God's posture is not excited about judgment, but he wants all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. His heart is for humanity. So if you find yourself afraid of how all things are going to wrap up, whatever that is, you read through Revelation and you're terrified, whatever that looks like, you can know that that's, that fear should lead you to repentance. Because if you are in Christ, you have no need to be afraid, none whatsoever. The second thing is it calls us to live with urgency and awareness. Uh, when you read through the New Testament and you see these kind of pictures of uh, the end or pictures of the resurrection or pictures of the future, uh, they're given to us with uh, some encouragement that sounds like this. Be sober-minded. Be alert. Be strong in the Lord. Make the best use of time. Always be prepared. Let no one deceive you. Stand firm. Those are the kinds of messages that come out of the New Testament. Whenever the future is talked about, there's a call on us to be ready and aware and stand firm and sober-minded. Not like we're just looking for the signs of the end and we're just anticipating and trying to find the right chart that says when everything's going to happen or figure out the blood moons or anything like that. Sorry for you blood moon people. We're not trying to figure those things out. What we're doing is being alert to the day, aware of our calling today, God's presence today, what his desire is for humanity, and ultimately not to get caught up in the things of today. Be alert and sober-minded means that we are living for eternity with our citizenship here and now. That's why we talk about being exiles. That's everything that Peter is going to talk about in 1 Peter. And it's this call to live with a sense of urgency that today is important because God desires that those that don't know him will find faith in him. He wants to redeem. It's his desire to redeem. And the third thing uh, that these prophecies do is they remind us to keep the main thing the main thing. I'm guessing that God didn't give visions and prophecies of the end to terrify and confuse his people. He didn't give us these pictures so that we could uh, spread out into camps and have our, our theological ideas of what we think is going to happen. And then we actually can never agree and never be in the same room because we have a different interpretation of how all things are going to wrap up. That's actually not it. In fact, Paul encourages Timothy uh, while he's in Ephesus to do this. It says 1 Timothy 1, 3 through 7. Stay in Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered into vain discussion, that's empty discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they're saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. 
One of the key shepherding challenges that Paul gave to Timothy was to keep believers' minds on Jesus. It's a challenge. We get caught up so fast in the things of today, the the difficulties that are surrounding us, and it starts to take over all of our brain power, all of our heart space, and, and we just, we find ourselves bogged down by the things of this world. And Paul's challenge to Timothy is keep pointing people to Jesus. There's gonna be an onslaught of stuff that's gonna get you concerned about things here and now. Even things like the Antichrist and the beast and the man of lawlessness and the when and the how and the who and the what's it going to look like and the is it this person or is it that person. Paul's writing to Timothy saying, look, that's not the point. We have this charge and it's come to us from love and a sincere heart and a pure faith to go and make disciples, to love people well, to encourage them to follow Jesus. Here's the thing. I said this before. The Jews in the first century had calculated the dates of the Messiah And they were actively looking. They had the 490 years and they had their theory of exactly when the Messiah was going to come. And they still missed Jesus. John the Baptist's message in Matthew 4.17 was repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And that first word repent was the deciding factor as to whether people saw the Messiah or didn't. 490 years they counted. The Messiah was there, but they didn't have a heart of repentance. And so they missed him and they missed the kingdom. Paul's call to Timothy is to ultimately challenge people to live a life of repentance, ready for whatever the Messiah is going to give to us so that we don't miss what he has for us and that the people around us don't miss Jesus. My encouragement is do not get caught up in the things that are, I don't believe, even designed to be known, but rather fix your eyes on Jesus. If it helps, here are a couple of things that we can know about the end times, and then we'll wrap up. Number one, Jesus is coming again, Matthew 24, 27. Number two, I'm not going to preach a whole message on all of these, though I could. I'm just going to tell you these things. Number two, Romans 8, 28. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. God is sovereign and over all history. And number three, 2 Thessalonians 1, 5 through 12. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but there will be a final judgment that will determine eternity. And that's a, a theme that's repeated throughout the New Testament. There is a final judgment. Number four, Ephesians 1, 11 through 14. Our inheritance is secured through Jesus and we have the Holy Spirit, the deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. That's why we don't need to be afraid. We have it. It's been given to us. In Matthew 24, things will get increasingly difficult as we move towards the return of Jesus, him coming on the clouds. And number five, Matthew 24, 14 and Philippians 1, 21, our role is the proclamation of the gospel until our death or until Christ's return. Either way, our role stays the same. We preach Jesus. We make disciples of all nations. And so our understanding of the end is designed to compel us to give us hope, to know that God is faithful and sovereign and will bring all things together for good, but for today to be alert and sober-minded and ready and active in bringing uh, the name of Jesus to the nations. So I want to encourage you and challenge you. Yes, we can be aware of the end, but it's designed to get us ready for today. Let's pray. Jesus, we love you. We praise you. Thank you for giving us such a foundation of hope, such a readiness, a a rock to stand on, that is you, Jesus. The solution to our future, it's, it's so clear. 
that it's Jesus. And what we do here and now, uh, Lord, is, is ultimately to bring glory to your name. So I pray that you would be refining us and readying us for today. With tomorrow in our minds, ready us for today. Give us that sense of urgency, that sense of fearlessness, that there's no condemnation. Ready us for today, Lord Jesus. We love you and we praise you in your name. Amen.